0: my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Scott Smith, who um, is an associate clinical professor of um, medicine at Stanford, uh, a a senior physician at Kaiser Permanente in Redwood City, uh, sort of chief of chiefs of travel medicine for uh, Kaiser Northern California, who will uh, talk about uh, travel medicine uh, for our HIV-infected travelers.
1: So I am charged with... uh talking about travel medicine, and in the context, of course, of HIV-infected patients, I want to give you a little background first about how do we know what we know about people who take the risk of traveling. And a lot of this data is collected from GeoSentinel, a group that uh, looks at return travelers, and then they rank order what people visit, have medical visits for afterwards. And this is a logarithmic scale of what these 17,000 people might come back with. And top on the list is diarrhea. Some of the other things include fever, a variety of fevers, and the one that I'm gonna focus on is malaria. And then there's a variety of vaccine-preventable things. So um, this is the study in the New England Journal, 2006, uh, looking at these 17,000 ill-returned travelers and what they had and where they went and it informs us really how we might rank order what we're offering patients, and I don't expect you can see this, but just appreciate there are seven lines for different continents and places that these travelers went, and then on the line is listed what they're uh, coming back with, and top on those lines in most destinations is diarrhea. So we'll spend a little bit of time about that, and then of course in Sub-Saharan Africa, it happens to be malaria. So my objectives are to describe the relative value of three vaccines for travelers. I just chose travel-related vaccines, Hep A, typhoid, and yellow fever, Uh, for for good reasons. I'll show you in a moment. Prescribe a prevention and treatment strategy for the most common illness in travelers, which is diarrhea. And then lastly, uh, name the best options for malaria prevention in persons who are on heart. So... I think our patients uh, are traveling a lot more, 90% plus in uh, some of our clinics here in Northern California are uh, undetectable viral load. They're uh, always expressing surprise, Dr. Smith, I'm still alive, I can't believe it. Uh, and they're now uh, enjoying travel and life. Travel makes one modest. You see what a tiny place you occupy in the world. But uh, I think this is good news for us in general. So. The first of three sections that I'm going to go over is the vaccines in travelers with HIV. And again, these are the three vaccines that I've chosen, Hep A, typhoid, there are two types, as well as the yellow fever, which I'll spend the most time discussing. Before we do that, I want to just uh, review vaccines in general in asymptomatic HIV uh, infection. And uh, patients with CD4 counts of 200 to 500 should be considered to have, a limited, uh, have limited immune deficits, and therefore you can proceed as you would <coughs> with most any other person. CD4 counts increased <coughs> are, um, increased by antiviral drugs rather than the nadir count should be used. And as we all know here, we used to think of nadir counts as the, the danger sign before doing anything and uh, future risk, but we know that that's not the case and we use their current CD4 count. I'll show one study from Jade's in a moment that uh, um, suggests maybe it's the viral load, not even the CD4 count, that's more important to consider in the context of yellow fever. The exact time uh, at which reconstituted lymphocytes are fully functional isn't well defined, but um, most clinicians would recommend that you uh, uh, wait three months after reconstitution before both the administration of these vaccines, but also recommending uh, travel when you might be at risk for some of these infections. <clears throat> uh, while seroconversion rates uh, and uh, geometric mean titers of antibody in response to vaccines may be less than those measured in healthy controls, most vaccines can elicit seroprotective levels of antibody in most HIV-infected patients. So. Um, <clears throat> We'll give them vaccine anyway, but in studies looking at response, it's, it's usually a tiny bit less, especially if your CD4 is a, uh, lower. Um, and then we talk about these blips, uh, transient increases in HIV viral load, which are associated with vaccination, but they go back to baseline. Really it's probably inconsequential, so uh, don't worry about that. Um, Severe immunocompromised patients, patients with CD4 less than 200, and AIDS-defining illness or clinical manifestations of syst- symptomatic HIV are considered to have severe immunosuppression, should not receive live attenuated viral or bacterial vaccines. And the two of those I'm going to speak to in a moment. And the response to inactivated vaccines will also be suboptimal, so if you can wait three months you know, once you're reconstituted before offering these vaccines, or if you were given a vaccine while their CD4 count is lower than CD4, you might consider repeating that in the future once they're they're back. This is the study in Jade's from a couple of weeks ago, CD4 versus viral load. And basically they looked at uh, 364 HIV infected patients who were given a yellow fever vaccine and, uh, <clears throat> documented that the vaccine actually produces a pr- protective titer, they checked a month afterwards, in 98% of uh, patients infected with HIV. Um, <clears throat> poor and early waning responses are associated with higher uncontrolled viral loads rather than the CD4. So um, maybe look at the viral load before vaccinating uh, these individuals uh, more closely than we w- were worrying about the CD4, less than 200 so their, uh, part of their conclusion was concern remains about the safety of ALP fever immunization in HIV infected patients. Of course, uh, <clears throat> still a concern because it's a live vaccine. Newly diagnosed treatment, naive patients with CD4 counts less than 200. Travel should be delayed. I mentioned this um, <clears throat> until they're reconstituted if possible. And this delay minimizes not only risks for getting vaccinated, but also, of course, uh, risks with exposure to these um, various potential illnesses during travel. The other question that comes up is about household contacts. If uh, you're vaccinating somebody in the household of a patient with HIV, AIDS, or severe immunocompromised status. Uh, we should not worry about giving any live vaccine, with the one exception of the, the flu. Um, <clears throat> the atten- live attenuated flu uh, vaccine is the only one formally that uh, you would want to uh, avoid in household contacts for severely immunocompromised patients. Um, there are a few controlled studies on clinical efficacy and effectiveness of vaccination in patients on heart. Uh, we do it all the time. There are recommendations I'll show you in a moment. Um, for that, uh, published data indicate that heart restores vaccine immunogenicity. So again, waiting that three months, um, maybe, maybe uh, get, a, get a better response. So despite effective heart, responses remain often suboptimal um, relative to HIV-infected, um, or relative to HIV negative individuals, although they may improve with larger and more frequent doses. And that's uh, being studied and reviewed in the context of the the Varivax, the vaccine against varicella. That was a lot of words, a lot of type. I hope you're still awake. You with me? So this kind of summarizes the uh, vaccines. When people come to us for travel, We want to make sure all their routine vaccines are, of course, up to date. And then HIV-specific vaccines, including Hep B, varicella zoster, this is recommended in some countries, not yet ours, and uh, pneumococcal vaccines are uh, uh, given. And then the travel vaccines, particular to exposures in the destinations, include, I think, universally, hepatitis A, but um, typhoid, yellow fever, and then a variety of uh, rare infectious diseases, including rabies, meningitis. Um, some places, England, for instance, recommends meningococcal C vaccine uh, for all HIV positive uh, patients anyway, never mind travel. So first vaccine that I'm gonna review, hepatitis A. All HIV patients, this is my opinion, all HIV patients should have this as a matter of routine if their titers are negative. And I think most of us do this It isn't an official ACIP recommendation. Um, And the other question that comes up around this is, well, do I revaccinate them? I've been seeing this patient for 15 years. They're about to go off to South America. The answer is there's no recommendation to revaccinate like many of the other 10 years later. um, After you finish the initial series at zero and six months, you're done. And so feel confident then about hepatitis A uh, vaccine. The next one that I want to talk about is uh, yellow fever. Um, By the way, it's called the yellow book. The CDC makes a yellow book because of this uh, disease and uh, this vaccine. And um, travelers with severe immune compromise should be strongly discouraged from travel to destinations that present a true risk for yellow fever. This is the CDC uh, word's recommendation. If travel to an area where yellow fever is recommended and is unavoidable, then the vaccine is not given, then you're to instruct the patient to avoid uh, contacts with mosquitoes or prevent uh, mosquito bites, but also um, you can give them a vaccine waiver. Um, So that's pretty easy to do. There is just a sentence or two that, that says this is to certify that immunization against yellow fever is contraindicated because of the following conditions, and you might not even have to say. AIDS, HIV, but rather immunocompromised status. And that's sufficient. And they, if it's on your official letterhead, uh, must accept by regulation uh, a doctor's signature and certification that this would be contraindicated. <clears throat> so uh, the letter, um, if international travel requirements are n- uh, not a true exposure risk or what motivating the vaccine, then um, you you really should avoid uh, giving the vaccine and just do the waiver letter. And uh, they may not be accepted by some countries, these waiver letters, but if they're rejected, make sure that this uh, patient, if they are severely immunocompromised, realizes that it might be better to be deported, (laughs) leave the country than to get the yellow fever vaccine because of uh, uh, risks from this being a live vaccine. Here's Steve in clinic, vaccination with a pen may be more appropriate than the needle. And he's saying, I'm sure you'll agree, we we don't want an epidemic. And uh, this is uh, vaccination with the the needle. But this is to say, this vaccine has been uh, the only requirement for travel. And it's been very successful, actually, in controlling yellow fever worldwide because of the WHO regulations around this. Patients may ask you, what are the required vaccines? What do I have to do before travel? Well, this is the only thing that you really have to consider before traveling. Everything else is optional. All of the, you know, malaria, prophylaxis, et cetera, this is, this is a regulated thing that countries can uh, decide to not let you pass further if you don't have documentation. So. Patients with limited immune deficits you should feel confident or asymptomatic HIV uh, going to these yellow fever endemic areas may be offered yellow fever vaccine monitored closely for possible adverse effects. Let me just, can we do the question straight from here? Okay. So international health regulations do not allow an exemption from yellow fever vaccine for travel to a country that has a vaccination requirement for entry even for medical reasons.
0: Is this true or false?
1: Good, false. So you don't have to uh, vaccinate. You can vaccinate with the pen, and that's okay and should be acceptable uh, to, to protect your patients. And the, this, is, uh, this, is, uh, this question actually comes from the yellow fever certification program that the CDC is having uh, practitioners undergo so that they understand that we're reaching a point now, the levels of yellow fever endemicity, uh, where the vaccine may be more dangerous in, in certain cases than the actual risk of getting the disease. Let me just speak very briefly. 80s aegypti is the... Vector, this is the mosquito that carries uh, yellow fever. It's aggressive, it's a day biter. It's not like the Anopheles, which bites at night, transmitting malaria. And it's a highly specialized organism to find us. And it also can transmit dengue and chikungunya virus. Uh, It's estimated by the WHO that there are 200,000 cases annually and 30,000 deaths from yellow fever. And uh, a study characterizing this, this is curious, and I think is a commentary on reporting, says that over this 20-year interval, a total of 26,000 yellow fever cases were reported to WHO. That means that you know 95% of the real cases, or the estimated cases, were not reported. Um, and then the other uh, way to divide this up, most of them are happening in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, fewer in South America. The yellow book, Yellow Fever, CDC's publication comes out every couple of years. It has redrawn the maps this year. And notice that the boundaries, everything that's yellow here, are not geopolitical lines uh, so much as where the actual risk is because of the in- insects. So notice if you're going to receive their Salvador in uh, Brazil, you may not need to get the vaccine. Or if you're just going to Lima, there's no yellow fever. But if you're going to be in any of these yellow areas, obviously uh, that's a consideration for the actual risk. So the vaccination by pen, if you're not going to be exposed, is a consideration. Uh, and then this is Africa showing the same thing with uh, the, these new uh, areas of uh, intermediate or less generally not recommended um, area, the hatched red area versus the uh, yellow area. So I think it's a good idea to check those maps. And remember, it's just South America and Africa. This is an older map from 1856 of yellow fever on our coast in the United States. All this yellow in here is where uh, cases were reported and uh, danger zones for, for getting uh, yellow fever way back, more than 100 years ago. What made this all turn around and so successful? The vaccine. And that was in large part because of the Panama Canal and um, efforts to to figure out how to uh, get that construction done. It was because the the yellow fever vaccine uh, protected the workers. Okay, next question, if we can put that up. What type of vaccine is yellow fever vaccine? Music, please. Simple questions, uh, you could be certified. Very good. Looks like most of you will be certified immediately. It's a live attenuated viral vaccine and that's what gives us pause, of course, when we're uh, looking and treating our patients. And this, uh, just to show you the two side effects related to the vaccine and why uh, we should consider before vaccinating people who are immunocompromised because of the viscerotropic disease And that occurs in 0.4 per 100,000 doses. I suspect there's a fair amount of underreporting here. And then uh, yellow fever associated vaccine neurologic disease um, is about 0.8 per 100,000 doses. Um, So based on that juxtaposed against risk when you're going to these endemic areas, uh, you need to consider what you're offering to the patient. Okay. That's yellow fever vaccine. Moving right along to typhoid fever vaccine. Who should be vaccinated? It's recommended that travelers for more than three weeks to endemic areas. There's no magic number about that. For for example, if you're going to Indian subcontinent or uh, off the usual tourist routes or rural areas, it doesn't have to be even as long as three weeks. It could be a shorter duration. And the vaccine should be given or started ideally two weeks before, and this is the case for most vaccines because it's about 10 to 14 days before you have antibody. By the way, um, back to the yellow fever, the, it's, you're certified, you have to have the vaccine within 10 days to enter the country. So you have to anticipate 10 days prior and get the vaccine to uh, enter an endemic uh, country. So typhoid fever, the clinical, its incubation period is one to three weeks. Clinical presentations usually with high fever. That's why they call it typhoid fever. Headache, fatigue, anorexia. These are the things that might be observed in travelers coming back. Abdominal pain, nausea. It doesn't have to be diarrhea. It could even be constipation from high fevers and dehydration. Can and this is a <clears throat> very general map. The brown is uh, depicting where the typhoid fever is uh, most most often observed. This I think doesn't measure uh, very well the relative risk, it's just high, intermediate, and low. It's a gram-negative bacteria, and it's person-to-person, contaminated food, water, drinks. Um, And humans are the sole reservoirs for infection. Uh, To diagnose it, we usually uh, observe watery diarrhea initially. It may become hemorrhagic or dysenteric, and it's diagnosed by a stool culture. Of course, it could be a blood culture as, as well once it's into systemic uh, disease. And it's associated in California mostly with un- undercooked uh, food, especially eggs and chicken and a number of other things, watermelon, sprouts, et cetera. <clears throat> and just to be clear, this is uh, my backyard. I have two chickens, and I don't collect the eggs. I send my son out to do it. And they're known as Samantha and Eloise, my, my chickens, and collectively Salmonella. So this is where they live. <laughs> if you wash your hands, you can prevent this, of course. But you're not going to easily uh, you know, be able to avoid it, even if you're a careful eater uh, and, and do all the right things in carbonated beverages, avoid ice, you can still get it. This is just to clarify, I do have two kids, uh, not Sam, not Ella, but these are my chickens named Sam and Ella. I have students uh, who were confused about my, <clears throat> I'm funny, but not that funny. <laughs> so the, the disease, I, I mean the, the vaccines to prevent this are two. One is a live oral uh, attenuated vaccine. That's the one that I recommend people to take in general if they can, again, considering immune status, et cetera. So th- why? Uh, because it lasts longer. It's five years, and it's a little bit more inconvenient. You have to take a pill, and you have to refrigerate that pill, and four doses, zero, two, four, and six days. Um, and you have to do this, of course, like all the vaccines, at least a week prior. The injectable, much much easier, it lasts two years. It's not live. and. Uh, uh, it only lasts uh, i said two years, and as a single dose, so that's that 's much easier. so those are the typhoid vaccines. This is Joel just back from uh, Brazil. I said a hamburger with fries, and that tells us that this disease, like many other enterics that you get, are transmitted by mechanical vectors, uh, flies uh, being a, a known known one. Uh, pretty efficient, carrying on their mouth parts and their feet, landing on feces to food to uh, perpetuate this uh, and other many diarrheal diseases. But this is a vaccine preventable one. Um, Okay, that transitions us very nicely into diarrhea. So uh, enteric infections, many foodborne and waterborne infections such as those caused by Salmonella, Campylobacter, Giardia, Cryptosporidia, can be severe and become chronic in immunocompromised people, of course. Um, Enteroagrid of E. coli is an emerging enteric pathogen, <coughs> causing persistent diarrhea. Um, what are the treatment options? Well, if it's uh, bacterial traveler's diarrhea, which the majority of antibiotics, of course, are used, and I had mentioned this carefulness. A good study, David Schlim, did a meta-analysis looking at... Uh, randomized controlled trials in travelers that were trying by behavior to avoid diarrhea. It wasn't possible. So um, don't, don't worry about that. Fluoroquinolones or uh, azithromycin in Southeast Asia is a treatment option, in Thailand especially, where there's resistance, azithro. Um, Cipro uh, is, is the most commonly prescribed one, uh, 500 twice a day. Uh, for one to three days, and then a Azithro in Southeast Asia. We don't use uh, Trimethoprim sulfa very much, sometimes in Mexico. Um, this is uh, me, the toothbrush. Sometimes I feel that I have the worst job in the world. These are my ID colleagues. Yeah, right. <clears throat> this summarizes the safety uh, of the drugs in the context of um, uh, HIV drugs. And just remember, Cipro is... The one to use and choose most generally, based on destination, if you can. Um, uh, but if you're, it's Southeast Asia and there are resistance concerns, uh, macrolides, in particular, azithro is the drug of choice, and it lists uh, sort of interactions, contraindications with, with some of these, uh, for example, protease inhibitors. But that's mostly just clarithro, so don't. Don't worry, Um, zithro is fine. Also because it's such a short course. It's just one dose, um, up to three three doses, um, depending on the recipe that you're following. And then Rifaximin, just to mention, there's no data with respect to interaction with uh, HIV drugs. Um, That's a luminal, uh, gut lumen drug. It's uh, fairly effective too. Um, And uh, it's a bit more expensive as well, and requires, two two times uh, daily dosing. What about prophylaxis? Well, the best prophylaxis that I mentioned was the vaccine because it requires no behavior onward, but um, it's not recommended in general. There's side effects with it, there's drug resistance questions, and uh, you gotta weigh uh, the use against just prompt early self-treatment. So um, it also might contribute to poor judgment and adventurous eating. Um, prophylaxis, though, with non-antibiotic things, probiotics—it's been studied, uh, doesn't, doesn't—it's uh, inconclusive. There's not, no recommendations about that. And then bismuth subsalicylate or pepto two tablets QID, so before each meal, two tablets, and then at bedtime. This is good, almost to the level of uh, <clears throat> antibiotics, and there are a few uh, side effects to take note of. Might turn your tongue black, your stools black. And it decreases antibiotic absorption. And also, of course, there's aspirin content to worry about. Sorry, the E. coli burger is to-go only. So if you were getting the to-go problem, the TD management, which is the standby treatment uh, with antibiotics, usually Cipro or Azithro, and anti-motility agents have been studied and looked at uh, and are safe in, in uh, this context. So if you're having uh, issues, you have to get on the airplane, it is okay to take that loperamide. And the other uh, thing that we like to let travelers know about is the, the uh, oral rehydration. Okay, last we have malaria, a huge topic to cover in three minutes. Do you think I can do it? So, um, immunocompromised travelers to malaria endemic areas should be prescribed appropriate drugs just like everybody else, okay? Of course, if they're on heart, there are a couple of considerations that I will mention, but the usual things must be considered. Um, the, uh, special concerns with, with travelers with HIV, though, the drugs used for malaria, chemoprophylaxis may interact. I'm going to show you a chart about that. And also, if you are co-infected, the disease may be more serious. And that's uh, a study in Uganda recently shows that that, that, that is the case. Um, okay, this is the uh, big chart that kind of goes over which heart uh, regimen drugs that you would uh, potentially be on would interact. And if you look at this and, and take from the bottom up, uh, you want to consider, first, chloroquine. If you're going to chloroquine-sensitive area, that's the easiest safe drug. There should be no trouble with interactions. <clears throat> Doxycycline is the uh, next one to consider on my list, going up the list here. Uh, no clinically significant interactions are expected. Protease inhibitors um, or, or others for the most part. And then atovaquone-proguanil uh, or malarone, is a, a once-a-day drug that's actually gone generic just last November is another uh, uh, good option, but obviously you can see has some uh, interactions and considerations with uh, protease inhibitors and NRTIs. Um, and this is basically what I just said in text. Uh, so. The other thing to consider though, is the relative risk depending on where you go. And this illustrates that uh, fever in the return traveler, majority of which is in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, uh, malaria. Uh, there's a big difference between malaria areas in the Caribbean versus, uh, and South America even, and Africa. Some people in, this is East or South Asia, Some people wouldn't even give uh, malaria prophylaxis, the British, for instance, in travelers to India because of the trouble and the extra expense and so on, Um, and and relatively lower risk. And most of it's vivax and you're not gonna die from it. Uh, So uh, we we still um, advise travelers, uh, however, even to India. Um, Personal protection for uh, prevention. Mosquito avoidance, so bed netting, insect repellents, permethrin-impregnant clothing. These are all good things as well to avoid uh, dengue and uh, chemical prophylaxis. And there's the short list. And I am going to show this one last slide here, Steve, thank you. (laughs) This is the area in Southeast Asia that has a lot of resistance, and uh, azithromycin might be considered, or doxy to use in there, and then I put these in order of consideration in the HIV Traveler, chloroquine, doxy, and mefloquine, if possible, because that's now available generic. Uh, um, I'm, I'm sorry, and malarone, is, malarone is the third one. I put them in order, they showed up. Uh, and then primaquine. The rest of the, the, the details about um, uh, these, these drugs, are in your handout, so I'll let you sort through uh, that. But the one thing about doxy, because I promoted it so high, hide your eyes here, but uh, this is photosensitivity, um, something to consider uh, with doxycycline, especially going to these sunny places. So I'll I'll leave you look at the the drug charts comparing these, but uh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to come.
0: Thank you very much. Shall I sit down? Yeah, have is... to see. We have time for a few questions uh, while their questions are coming up. Um, since you um, focus on vaccine-preventable diseases, can you give us a brief update on where the malaria vaccine uh-huh. may or may not be? I think there's some more recent, more encouraging possibly. Yeah, yeah.
1: so there's a uh, sporozoite vaccine. Uh, it's not here yet. There are a lot of studies still in... Uh, uh, Africa about this um, it's it's uh the efficacy levels I think what people would be interested in are pretty low on the order of circumcision for HIV um, you know uh, forty to fifty percent maybe and um, it's it's also really specific in the how long it lasts is is questionable so uh, there's no role at this point at all for travelers
0: okay not uh, even
1: being studied in that context.
0: And then uh, a question about um, CD4 counts. Again, I think you alluded to both CD4s and viral loads, but is sort of 200 your cutoff for safety for yellow fever vaccine and yes. and for other live vaccines like the oral typhoid? Yes, so
1: 200 know? is the cutoff that the CDC likes to use.
0: And I've got another question, that you, re- you sort of alluded um, to the hepatitis A but many um, organizations recommend, because of the risk of motor vehicle accidents and hospitalizations with trauma, Hep B uh, v- immunity. And obviously, all of our patients, uh, with or without diabetes, but with HIV, should be um, uh, immune to Hep B. That's but right. You didn't. Rec- sometimes they sneak through. And so, what about Twinrix um, so- as for A and B? And do you? Automatically go to a higher dose, you know, sort of the renal dose of Hep B vaccine. So I
1: think we all try and vaccinate our HIV patients for both A and B, and that's, if not done, should be done with Twinrix if uh, if indicated and possible before travel. So definitely uh, Hep B, because of this transfusion question, is a is a great idea, and
0: uh, we we should definitely do that. Um, one of the uh, questions deals with: Should we be documenting immunity to? A and B post-vaccination for travelers? I mean... No. Okay. Is just, <laughs> just that based, the based on opinion?
1: <laughs> well, there are a couple of groups, I think, that are formally recommended for Hep B, I'm thinking, to be uh, checked for seropositivity. And those are healthcare workers and people on renal dialysis. But other than that, you know, we don't even check HIV or travelers for response to the vaccine. So don't worry about it.
0: The next question is actually a nice segue into the fifth talk of the morning, and that has to do, many of our patients have been undetectable uh, virologically for months or years but can't reach that 200 CD4 cell count. They haven't really at least confirmed uh, immune reconstitution. What do you say to them? Just go anyway? Do we vaccinate them because they're undetectable?
1: Well, I'm a big proponent of having fun and travel, and I think they should go. Uh, I would vaccinate them with the pen if uh, they're really interested or really being exposed and they're undetectable, you could consider giving them a a live vaccine.
0: And one of the questions um, leads to an issue that certainly patients bring up with me a lot, and that is um, you alluded to maybe not stating HIV in the um, uh, letter um, uh, sort of uh, yellow fever exemption. And so, what is the risk of of stating HIV or patients carrying HIV medications in the original bottles um, yeah. uh, in terms of, some of these countries? Do you have I any think, sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard some horror stories about that, and I think that's changing. I think that there's uh, that's that's less of a common thing that you would hear that you you've been stopped in China or Egypt or wherever, you know, because of. Uh, HIV diagnosis, um, I, I think uh, you don't need to mention it in that letter, and saying immunocompromised status because there are so many of them is sufficient. Um, if you want to be explicit, fine. But uh, regarding the bottles and the labels, I think the best thing is to carry the medicines in the original bottle. Often people have a lot of medicines, and it's good so that it's not, you know, looking like you're selling drugs or something, that they're appropriately prescribed.
0: And is there um, doxycycline resistance in falciparum malaria? do we... Yes, is it, is uh,
1: there is, but it's it's rare. This uh, little area in Southeast Asia that I highlighted is um, it's recommended that you take doxy in that in that area. Or but there is doxy resistance, and so the choice then, and it's much less good, is azithromycin. Believe it or not. Yeah.
0: And then a couple of brief questions. One is, do all Travis diarrhea have to be treated with antibiotics? I mean, it can be self-limited for some.
1: That's right. No, they don't. And we do have a little uh, specific uh, outline about what it is that would indicate taking antibiotics, and that includes fever, bloody stools, or just what they say, terrible abdominal cramping. So, you you know, most of it is viral and self-limited, and if you're able to wait, I wouldn't take antibiotics at the first.
0: And then the last question is to do with thymect- Are th- some patients who have been thymectomized? <laughs> um, how absolute a contraindication is that to? It's an
1: absolute contraindication. Yeah. So if you fever. have a thymectomy, then don't give yellow fever vaccine. Right.
0: Good. Okay. Thank you very much. Great. Thank That's you. Great.